0: All right, welcome back. <clears throat> we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, let me encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of a, a chair in front of you. And so we encourage you to, uh, if, you, if you don't have a paper Bible, you can keep that. Uh, you can take it home and use that. If you'd like to... Uh, The passage will also be up on the screen, and so uh, as you follow along, we'll read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to gather together on the Lord's day uh, to uh, exalt Lord Jesus and to seek your face, and we pray that you might speak to us. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that just a word from you could change everything. And so give us ears to hear, Uh, as we read last week with Lydia that you opened her heart so that she may receive the word. We pray that prayer for us, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that we might hear your word, and that we might be able to apply it to our life today. And that You would use Your Word to challenge us, and to change us, and to strengthen us, and encourage us. Speak to Your people as we are listening today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, follow along as I read. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed well, that's the passage that we're considering today. Two new cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And you'll remember last week, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they uh, and Luke as well, went to Philippi. It was their first city in what we know of as Europe. Of course, they wouldn't have had those divided borders. They would not have considered Europe and Asia as separate as we do. But, but Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had spent a week, maybe even a month or more, in Philippi. And in that passage last week, we recorded that uh, they experienced three of these divine appointments, right? That's when someone who is seeking God uh, is divinely uh, you know their circumstances bring them together in such a unique and, and way that the person who knows the gospel shares the gospel with someone who needs to hear the gospel, and so we heard three of those uh, divine appointments in that first city in Macedonia, and those three encounters led to these people being saved and giving their life to Christ, and many of them in their household uh, also being saved. Do you remember who the three people were? It was Lydia, right, the woman uh, who sells the, uh, the purple linen. It was um, likely a, a businesswoman who was, uh, had some wealth uh, as well. She also uh, was able to see members of her household saved. And she persisted that Paul and Silas and the team should stay at her house. And this is also likely where the church at Philippi met. There was also the slave girl who was possessed by a demon. Do you remember her story? She walked through the city with her owners and had a spirit of divination that possessed her. And Paul became greatly annoyed with her as she was crying out after them. And and he exercised the demon from her. Uh, and as a result of that... Paul and Silas were arrested and beaten publicly and sent to jail and they responded with singing and praying until midnight when the Lord brought about an earthquake and the jails opened and their uh, chains fell off and the jailer uh, thought that all the prisoners had escaped but instead Paul saved his physical life and then shared the gospel with him and then he and his household also received the gospel and were baptized this was an incredible experience, and so today, uh, today's text continues that. This was their first city uh, where they had experienced any kind of fruitfulness on this second missionary journey. And so it's interesting that uh, what we had heard in Acts 17 is that, we just read this, that, that after they leave their first city uh, and they got to Thessalonica, they're described as people who have turned the world upside down, Right? Can you imagine that having just been to one city and preached the gospel in that place, that the word is already getting out about Paul and Silas and this missionary team and the work that they were being used by God to accomplish? And it made me ask this question uh, Were Paul and Silas, when they left Philippi after the jailer released them that next day, how were they feeling? Were they bleeding? Were they bruised? Were they limping? There's a reason why they traveled with a doctor, right? Uh, Paul had Luke as his physician and they traveled together. I remember when I was in uh, seventh grade in the summer, um, my older brother came home and he was at a movie theater behind the theater and some guys in a car um, saw him and jumped out and, and... Four guys beat him up really badly. Uh, He came home on his bicycle and he had uh, cuts and bruises and just an enormous fat lip just swollen out. I've never seen a lip so swollen. And I can remember watching him over the next uh, week or two as the cuts on his face began to to go down and, and as his swelling went down, Uh, And wondering, um, you know, if there would be any scars and if if he would be okay. And and I remember seeing him just putting ice on his black eyes and bandages and stitches and all the things. And and I can remember as a sixth or seventh grade kid trying to prepare myself for something like that. Every time I left the house after that, I got a big, heavy bicycle chain and I put it in my backpack I don't know what i expected to do with that like if i had seen too many movies that i would just swing this thing wildly if four guys who were older tried to attack me but but my head was on a swivel uh, for months and months and months after that by the way i'm not um, i'm not a violent person at all I've, you know I, I can think of one fight that i've ever been in in my life uh, i've started plenty of fights but i've never finished any or been in any really One of my best friends, Nick Owens, uh, when I dribbled past him on the basketball court, he reached around to slap the ball out, and he accidentally slapped me in the face. And I turned around and just overcome with anger and shoved him, and he shoved me back. And so I started a long punch way out here. And by the time it hit him, he'd already punched me three times in the face. (laughs) So that when my punch hit him, it just kind of like rolled off of his face and I realized at that moment in seventh grade that "Ah, maybe fighting's not for me Uh, I'm not the toughest guy Um, but this instance with my older brother uh, it scarred him Uh, he couldn't go out alone for a long time he was nervous anytime a car would screech to a halt near him uh, and it 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 damaged him psychologically emotionally and in other ways Anytime we experience any kind of physical violence, there is that scarring and damage physically, emotionally, psychologically. And maybe some of you have experienced physical violence. Maybe in your home that you grew up in, maybe someone was violent toward you. Maybe you had an abusive father. Statistically, it wouldn't surprise me if in this room, it's statistically one out of uh, five women experienced domestic abuse in the church and outside of the church. It's likely that maybe in this room there are women who are being abused, children who are being abused. It's easy to come and put on a face. How are you? Everything's great and good for me and good, good brother and all those kinds of things, but we never know what's going on in people's homes. You never know how someone is showing up this morning, what they might have endured over the past week, whether it's emotional abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse. It's another reason why we need to give each other a lot of grace in our lives. You just never know what's going on behind closed doors in people's homes. But those kind of things leave long-term scars and it makes me wonder how Paul and Silas did this. How after being beaten with rods repeatedly and thrown into prison, were they limping, were they swollen, were they bruised, were they scarred? You don't have to turn here, but, but later on, when Paul writes his letter to the, to the church at Thessalonica, listen to how he remembers and describes um, his visit to Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wrote, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. But as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of so much conflict. Years later, Paul still remembers what took place at Philippi. It had lasting Damage on him. But even though he suffered so much, he still went to Thessalonica while suffering and recovering from their shameful treatment of Philippi, and they declared the gospel boldly through God's power in the midst of that conflict. And and there's a simple point of application here. If you're waiting to do effective ministry for some magical, mythical time in your life when everything is great, when everything's good in your family and everything's good in your relationships and everything's good in your finances and everything's good personally and emotionally, you will never fully engage in effective ministry. Listen, there will never be a time in your life when you're free of financial or career or health issues or family issues or relational issues or um, shifting political climates and difficulties and trials. And we can learn here from Paul and Silas that in the spite of their circumstances, not because they had perfect circumstances, but limping, bloody, bruised, and possibly swollen, they limped into Thessalonica and boldly proclaimed the gospel. I think I would have been at least a little bit cranky, right? I think I would have had a bad attitude. I think I might have taken a week or two off in Amphipolis and Apollonia before going uh, into Thessalonica. Well, let's look back at our text in chapter 17, verse 1, and just work our way through this. Uh, From Philippi to Thessalonica via the the, Via Ignatia, which was a Roman road uh, that went east to west. It's about 100 miles. I don't know if they went by foot. I don't know if they went by horseback. I don't know if they had a carriage. I don't know how this worked, but it likely took them a week or so, give or take a few days. And the first place Paul goes is to a synagogue. This would have been the most fruitful place for him to talk about Jesus the Messiah is to uh, Jewish people who are meeting in Thessalonica in the synagogue they know the Old Testament uh, they know the scriptures they're likely waiting for the Messiah to come and so Paul goes there and for three straight Sabbaths that's Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. during this time of meeting which might have happened on a Saturday uh, they he's for three straight weeks he is going to the synagogue to preach and what does he preach? Look at verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul is reasoning with them from the Scriptures, and he's explaining and proving that Jesus had to suffer. John Stott tells us that this precedent of talking about Jesus' suffering was set by Jesus himself as Luke had already recorded in his first book, The Gospel of Luke. During Jesus' public ministry, you remember on many occasions, Jesus predicted that the Son of Man had to suffer and that the Son of Man would die and that the Son of Man would rise again on the third day. Jesus wanted His disciples to know this. And so He continued to tell them about His suffering that would take place. And then after his resurrection, you remember in Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, as Jesus walked with them and his his identity was hidden from them, uh, they began to share. and, And then Jesus himself traced through all the scriptures, quote, that the Messiah had to suffer, all that the Messiah would have to suffer before entering his glory. Jesus re-emphasized the teaching of the Old Testament and of his early ministry that the Christ must suffer and rise. If we hear stories about suffering, uh, re- I recently re-watched uh, the documentary movie, Band of Brothers, not really a documentary, but the Band of Brothers about World War II, and and in one of the final episodes, episode 9 or 10, um, this unit of 101st Airborne, they Uh, go into a city in Germany and they, just on the outskirts, they discover a concentration camp. And the scene is absolutely gripping when they um, see these uh, shells of of people, just skin and bones, uh, hanging out on the sides of this fence, just begging them to to come out. They found those who were starving, those who were sick, those who had been beaten, those who had been burned and mistreated and abused. It's a shocking scene. We hear those stories about suffering. Even the latest reports from the Hamas attack on Israel, some of the numbers over the last few weeks are that 1,400 Israelis were killed, 7,326 Palestinians killed, 5,431 Israelis injured, 18,967 Palestinians injured. Over 250,000 Israelis were displaced, and over 1.4 million Palestinians were displaced in Gaza. Currently, as of yesterday, were 229 soldiers and civilians being held hostage. Up to date, there were four hostages released and 27,781 residential units destroyed in Gaza. Those are just the numbers, but you've seen the stories and heard the stories and seen the interviews, all the terrible things that take place. Whenever we hear about suffering and pain, whether it's physical or mental or emotional or sexual, it affects us deeply. For many of us, it strikes a note of compassion and sadness. Others have some kind of a twisted pleasure in seeing someone else or something else suffer. And others just kind of approach it with a cold indifference. Paul proclaimed a suffering Messiah. And this was a stumbling block to the Jews. They, they did not have this image of their Savior or this Christ figure who would come and redeem Israel and save everyone Suffering like this. And I think everything changes when you grasp the purpose of someone else's suffering. Knowing that Jesus willingly laid down his life, knowing that Jesus willingly went to the cross, knowing that in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the middle of the night, Jesus could have easily slipped out and been undetected and just went on the run. But instead, Jesus stayed and he waited, and when the Roman soldiers came, and they asked, where is Jesus? He said, I am He. Jesus willingly accepted suffering. What prompted this? What motivated Jesus' suffering? I want to get to that toward the end of our message here. I also want you to see here that Paul proclaimed Jesus. Uh, Scott tells us John Stott tells us that Paul was engaged in proclaiming Jesus, that is to say, he told the story of Jesus of Nazareth, he told about his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and the gift of his spirit. He probably talked about his present reign and his future return. We know he did because in first and second Thessalonians, Paul chastised the people in Thessalonica who had quit their jobs because they were just sitting there waiting for Jesus to come back. They just were doing nothing. And so he said, if a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. And he said, you know, you should work with your hands and be quiet and mind your own business so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. He wanted them to work. And so we know he talked to them about the return of Jesus and all of the basic things about Jesus. So he was proclaiming Jesus. Stott says there's no reason to doubt that Paul gave a thorough account of the saving career of Jesus from beginning to end. He majored on the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul equated the person of Jesus to be equal to the fulfillment of the prophesied Christ or Messiah. And I only say that because there is within our culture today in progressive Christianity circles, those who would say that the, the office of Christ is a larger universal role that could fit within any religion and it contains a person of deity or a person of godlike nature, and that Jesus was an example of a Christ. Listen, Paul proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, not a Christ. We're not waiting for some other spiritual person who has godlike, deity like qualities. Paul is equating the person of Jesus to the one Messiah or Christ. This is important for us because 1 John warns us that there will in the last days be antichrists coming. Those who describe themselves as a Christ or a messianic figure. And it's important for us to know that there is one Messiah and His name is Jesus. And Scripture tells us that. What's the response here in Thessalonica? Look at verses 4-9. through As Paul proclaimed Jesus, it says that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. The New Testament is very clear about women and their importance in the gospel and kingdom ministry. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself elevated the role of women and elevated, gave them dignity and honor and put them in an important place. And Paul and the missionary teams as well, Luke takes note of the leading women. And last week in Philippi, there were a number of women. And then next week in Berea, there were women. And in the next text in Athens, he describes leading women and other women and Greek women. And there are just a number of places in Scripture where the role and dignity of women is elevated from where they were. Uh, at the time that Paul and Silas were writing. As a matter of fact, um, an Orthodox Jewish person would wake up every day and would say this prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not a slave or a woman. Isn't that a horrible thing to pray? Men, I don't encourage that, by the way, to pray over your family in that way. But that would have been a prayer that Paul had prayed many times. How's the response? So Paul proclaimed, many were persuaded, um, but verse 5 says the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now listen, this takes work to instigate a riot in a Roman city like this. And so this is what these Jews who were jealous, obviously they didn't receive Jesus, they rejected Jesus. And because they saw so many people going to Paul and Silas in a fit of jealousy, they set the city in an uproar. And they said to the authorities, these men who have turned the world upside down have also come here and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now listen, this is a serious charge. This would have been treason, and this would have been an immediately punishable crime. And so they are being accused of treason against Caesar. Verse 8, The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is just a little bit of uh, speculation, but it's likely that when they took security money from Jason and the brothers, it was in exchange for an agreement that Paul and Silas would never return to Thessalonica and would be immediately evacuated from the city. We understand or speculate that that might be true because and the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says, I, I eagerly wanted to come to you, but, but Satan has prevented me. And it's likely that this is what could have been the reason for that, is that Paul, the, the, the brothers made a deal for their life in order to get them out to pay money on the condition that Paul would not return. And so Paul had to leave. We see in this passage a divided response. There are people who believe, there are those Jews of the synagogue who were opposed. And I want you to understand this, that any time the gospel is preached, you should expect a divided response. There are at least two groups represented even here in this crowd. God has prepared those who are ready to hear and receive, as well as those who harden their hearts and refuse to believe. You'll see this next week in Athens when Paul preaches at the Areopagus. It says that some believe, some don't, and others just want to hear more. So maybe we can say that there are these three distinct groups. There are those who are hearing the gospel who are ready to believe in Jesus. There are those who reject Jesus. And there are those who would like to hear more about Jesus and consider his claims. In Thessalonica, we see just these two groups mentioned by Luke. Some believed, some were persuaded, uh, many God-fearing Greeks and, and many leading women. And so they responded to the gospel, but the second group opposed Paul and the team, and they opposed the gospel, and they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And Luke tells us that jealousy was their motive. And as a result of their jealousy, they took wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, they attacked Jason and his house, they dragged Jason and the brothers to the authorities, and they made treason accusations They made uh, lying and exaggerated uh, accusations against them. They took money from Jason and the rest. They had to immediately send Paul and Silas away by night. It's cut their ministry time in Thessalonica short. And not only that, but we'll read here in a few minutes that those same jealous Jewish people traveled to Berea also and agitated and stirred up the crowds, which meant that Paul was immediately sent away jealousy is a terribly destructive emotion have you ever experienced jealousy or envy as a counselor a pastoral counselor i'm not a counselor but as a pastor i do pastoral counseling i found this um, this emotion wheel to be very helpful have you seen this before this emotion wheel uh, starts at this core with these Six basic emotions, anger, fear, sadness, happiness, uh, calmness, and strength. And then for each of those colors, it traces out a subset of emotions. And under the anger category here in this uh, sort of reddish pink column, the sub-emotions that are stemming from this anger are hurt, being hateful, being overly critical, experiencing frustration, annoyance, and jealousy. And in the outer uh, rim of this, as it lists these different emotions that are connected to anger, it gives you good Bible verses and passages to dwell on and to memorize. Some of those passages connected to jealousy in First Corinthians 13, you know the love chapter. Verse 4 says, love is patient and kind, and it does not envy. It does not envy. Love, love is not a jealous uh, a response. Uh, jealousy is not a response from those who love. In 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Paul says, I, I'm afraid that when I come to you, I may not find you the way I want you to, that perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, anger hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and other kinds of disorder. It's listed as one of the key qualities or traits of walking in our flesh and our sinful flesh in Galatians 5, verse 20. Paul says the, the evidence of walking in the flesh is obvious. You're idolaters, you're sorcerers, there is enmity, strife, jealousy, jealousy fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, and he goes on. But jealousy is listed right there as a fruit of walking in our flesh. James chapter 3, verse 14 through 16 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but this is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You want to know something that's demonic? Paul says it's this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. Verse 16 of James 3 says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Do you struggle with jealousy? Do you find yourself being envious of somebody else? Maybe somebody who has more or from your perception has better relationships or better families or better finances or better I think this is why God told us in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments that we shouldn't be coveting. Covetousness is a sin of seeing what somebody else has and desiring it for ourselves. If you're envious, if you struggle with jealousy, let me just help you understand that the Spirit filled Christian, according to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is self control over these emotions. There is hope. You don't have to walk in a spirit of envy and jealousy. It is a sin to confess, and it is something that God can give you deliverance from. Jealousy led these Jews to persecute Paul and Silas. So look at verse 10. Uh, Because of that, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, and when they arrived, they went, where? Back into the Jewish synagogue. I mean, really. I think I would have been like, I'm not going back there. I mean, every time I go into one of these places, something terrible happens, and yet they go right back in. It's a statement of their resiliency and of their calling. I think I would have just changed my plans a little bit. Verse 11 uh, tells us that they had a better reception. The Jews here were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so Therefore, many of them believed. And just understand that the therefore is connected to the fact that they took the Scripture seriously. They examined, they studied, they listened closely, they, they were attuned to it, and therefore, many of them believed. With not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. You've probably heard this phrase, that we're to be like a Berean. Have you ever heard that phrase, Anybody? We're supposed to be like a Berean. If you've grown up in church for any length of time, you might have heard that phrase. We're supposed to be like a Berean. Well, this is where we get that phrase. It's because Scripture attributes, the Holy Spirit attributes to this posture toward the Word of God as noble, as a value, something that we should seek for. A Berean, in our context, when we describe someone who's a Berean, it represents one who is open to learning something new, but is careful and thoughtful and investigates those claims thoroughly. And think about it. Any religion or spiritual leader who demands your allegiance or your life or your faith without any scrutiny is not worth following at all, are they? Christianity, one of its strengths is that it's open to skeptics. And and scrutiny. The field, an entire educational field called apologetics, is designed to train people to give answers and evidence to those who are seeking and asking. Some of the greatest leaders uh, in our past century um, uh, who were apologists um, experienced this sort of skepticism. And as they examined the evidence, they themselves were converted you think of the book, "The Case for Christ" by Lee Strobel, an Ivy League trained attorney and journalist, who, when his wife gave her life to Christ in Chicago, it didn't thrill him. <laughs> he was not super excited uh, that she gave her life to Christ. And yet, as he saw the character changes in her, he began to think over a period of years, maybe there's something to this, and, and so he put Christ on trial. And and as he examined the evidence, this skeptical person became a believer. It's a great book. It's called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I think there's even a movie about it. You think of other books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and um, other Norm Geisler is an excellent apologist. There are all these guys who make their way into this field of apologetics by defending the faith and giving an answer to those who seek it. And the result from these Bereans who approached Scripture in that way, understanding that Christianity is worth scrutiny, they believed, many of them. And then, of course, in verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul there at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. This mission team... Pivoted with every city, with every different circumstance. Paul and Silas, or Silas and Timothy stayed to make disciples and to establish a church, and they sent Paul off. In Philippi, Paul and Silas and Timothy left everybody. They just evacuated the city. When they got to Thessalonica, uh, Paul and Silas had to leave by night, and yet Jason and the brothers stayed there. And so every city, whenever they face all of these different experiences, They're pivoting as a mission team. And verse uh, 14 tells us that um, Silas and Timothy remained. In verse 15, Paul was on his way to Athens, and those who conducted him, uh, he told them, tell Silas and Timothy to come to me as soon as possible. And then they departed. And that's where Keith will pick up next week, describing what Paul does as a solo traveler in the city of Athens. Let me give you two application points in closing here. Two application points as I reflect on this and how it might apply to your life. The first one is this. Understand that the Holy Spirit, via Luke's writing, elevates the Word of God, elevates Scripture in the language that He uses, and so should we. Do you have a reverence for Scripture? one way that we can tell is what we do with our Bible during the week, right? I can remember a, a speaker once saying that if, if your Bible stays in the back seat of your car uh, during the week, or if it stays on your nightstand, or if it stays, you know, on a bookshelf, uh, it's possible that it's not something that you approach with as much reverence as you might think. John Stott tells us this about Luke in this report. He says, One important aspect of this passage shows us that the Holy Spirit is drawing the reader's attention to the attitude to the Scriptures that is adopted by both the speakers and the hearers, which is evidenced by the verbs he uses. In Thessalonica, Paul reasoned from the Scriptures, explained the Scriptures, proved the Scriptures, proclaimed the Scriptures, and persuaded them from the Scriptures... While in Berea, the Jews eagerly received the Scriptures and they diligently examined the Scriptures to see if Paul's arguments were convincing. And we may be sure that Paul welcomed and encouraged this thoughtful response. didn't bother Paul at all. Ask the questions. Poke holes if you can. This is open to dialogue. The Gospel message is that important. This is one of the functions of our small groups, by the way. If you attend here and and maybe you have doubts about the veracity of Scripture or its trustworthiness, a small group is the right place for you to be. It is in those places that you're able to ask questions and work through difficulties and struggles that you might have with Scripture. Paul, Stott continues, Paul believed in doctrine. His message had theological content, but not in indoctrination, which is the tyrannical instruction that demands an uncritical acceptance. Isn't that good? Let me read it again. It says that uh, that Paul welcomed and encouraged this thoughtful response. He believed in doctrine. His message had content, but he did not believe in indoctrination, which is a tyrannical instruction demanding uncritical acceptance. Have you ever been under somebody who's tyrannical about their faith and they force you just because I said so, right? Because I said so, that's the way it goes and you just better believe it or receive it or accept it. Listen, that's not the atmosphere or the culture that we're trying to to provide here. This is a place where your doubts and struggles and questions can be met with confident believers who have a high view of Scripture and long to answer those questions and have those discussions. This is a place for you to approach with those issues. And we would rather that than for you to go and sort of deconstruct on your own somewhere else. We we welcome dialogue and debate and questions about the Scriptures and about the doctrine that we believe. A characteristic of true religion is that it suffers itself to be examined and its claims to be so decided upon under examination. How's your approach to Scripture? Do you reverence it? Do you examine it? Do you study it? Do you approach it with eagerness? Have you ever seen those videos of a Chinese Christian who gets their first Bible? I mean, they just... its They hug it and they cry over it and they get on their knees and they thank God for it. And I read missionary stories occasionally and, and one missionary, a woman in Japan... Uh, She memorized uh, 300 passages of scripture because she knew that her day would come where she would be arrested. She memorized over 100 hymns and 300 passages of scripture. The missionary story also said that she uh, started eating rotten food on purpose because she knew that's that's what she would get in prison. That's a whole different level of commitment, right? To intentionally, purposefully start eating rotten food, but Her discipline to memorize Scripture demonstrated her view of Scripture. That's number one. Evaluate your reverence toward the Word of God. Be like a Berean in that way. The second thing I want to end on, application point, is to understand this major point or emphasis of Paul was that Jesus had to suffer and die. This was a point of doubt and struggle for anyone hearing about Jesus' life and ministry. Their Messiah, they didn't see Him as one who would suffer and die. To be hung on a Roman cross was absolutely shameful. Jesus, Paul said that the the cross is a a stumbling block, right, to Jews. They they don't want to see it. Why do we serve a suffering Messiah? How does Jesus' suffering encourage you or help you? Let me propose a couple of ways that makes Jesus' suffering beautiful. Number one, we see that sin costs something. God takes our sin very, very seriously. And you might discount your sin and say it's not that big of a deal, it's just a little this or it's just a little that. And I know God'll forgive me and I can move on and 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 move on with the desire to commit the same sin over and over and over again but understand that a suffering messiah shows us that god was willing to have his own son crucified because he takes sin that seriously never minimize sin when you do it discounts the suffering of jesus on the cross A second reason why suffering matters in jesus is we see how deep the father's love for us don't we Anytime you see uh, the cross, anytime you see Jesus or hear about His suffering, be reminded that it's because God loves you that Jesus endured suffering. One of the most familiar verses of all. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The cross should remind you of Jesus' suffering as a result of God's incredible love for you. And a third way that suffering is meaningful in the life of Christ is that we can take comfort in our suffering because you follow a Jesus who has endured suffering to the fullest. Hebrews 12, one through 2 tells us, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, if you're suffering, just take comfort in the fact that Jesus endured suffering as well and is there to comfort you in the midst of it. You don't serve a Jesus who says, ah, that's tough for you. I really wish I could identify with your struggles, but I can't. Now, we have a, a Savior who was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet remained victorious and sinless and suffered as a result. Let me close with, with Isaiah 53. Just a good reminder for us. Uh, Isaiah fifty three. If, if you're not familiar, is a, a prophecy about Jesus. It's uh, been labeled as the suffering servant. And let me just read these uh, these twelve verses. Actually, I'll back up to chapter fifty two, um, verse thirteen. Isaiah chapter fifty two, verse thirteen, and we'll read through fifty three, one through twelve. This was prophesied about who Jesus would be. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall cleanse many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. Isn't that a beautiful passage? That Jesus himself suffered so much. And when you consider why he did it, that he did it because God the Father sent him because he loves you and he loves me. This is how God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And our response to that, our response to Jesus' suffering is to glory in the cross, to proclaim it clearly because that's why it means so much to us. Father, we thank You so much for Your deep love for us. We thank You that Your love for us was demonstrated, not just talked about, not just sent in a note or a letter by a prophet or something, but Your very own Son Himself came. And demonstrated his love for sinful, rebellious sinners like me. So Father, we worship you for that. We praise you. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would apply your word to our hearts today. We pray that you would use it for your glory. And that you might strengthen us according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.